and literally every day I was wishing that I wasn't there. I didn't really did not want to be in this world. It was just difficult. I felt I'd be better off if I was not here. And it would be kind of having those thoughts on a daily basis and just struggling to maintain some kind of well-being. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. This week's episode, I am joined by Anita Guru, who we first met on the podcast. We are both judges at This Can Happen Global Awards, which is a mental health awards initiative designed to recognize those who are doing fantastic things in the field of mental health and well-being. This was our first conversation, and we had an opportunity to, to really get to know each other, and since we've become good friends, and in fact, Anita has joined us as a trainer for the Burn Chef Project and consults with us as well. So this conversation was a learning curve for me. Anita talks about how she studied psychology at school. She's a passionate advocate for eroding stigma and raising awareness for mental health and mental illness, as well as mental hygiene as well. She talks quite openly about her experience of being an inpatient and experiencing quite complex PTSD and and how that impacted her and how she's also recovered. And I really valued the conversation. It's fantastic that we are in this space where we can start to have more open conversations around these subject matters. And hopefully for anyone who out there is listening, this conversation might be helpful to you as well even if it's just to expand your knowledge. So without further ado, let's get started with this week's episode. And thank you ever so much to Anita for spending the time and and being part of our ongoing journey with us now. The Burnt Chef Project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston, a leading provider of innovative, high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. So, Anita, because this is the first time we've spoken, I just, I don't know who you are. I'd love to learn more podcast is going to be an opportunity for us to explore that it's going to be an opportunity for us to learn about your background you know where sort of you've grown up where you come from your relationship with the subject of mental health and mental illness and similarly to what I've done off the back of my experience like what have you learned and what are you doing now off the back of that journey so Anita if in your own words and your own time are you able to sort of just introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are yeah, so I am Anita Guru. When people ask you that question, you always think, oh my God, what should I What should I say? How should I introduce myself? But I suppose when you were say, talking about the introduction, the only thing I think of is I'm a massive mental health advocate and I was always intrigued by the human mind from when I did A-level psychology and I went on to do a degree in it as well. So I suppose I've always had that interest in human behaviour and what lies behind it. But I fell into career in HR in learning and development. So that I've been in that career over 15 years and, and moved around various organisations. 
I was born and grew up in southeast London um, and moved around ever since as an adult. And after I did my degree in psychology, I went on to do a master's in occupational psychology because just by default, I eliminated the different areas. I was psychology, you can go in all different exactly you know you got clinical you got educational I went I suppose I went with a safe option I almost went went down forensic psychology route but I did a temp job at the crown prosecution service and that just put me off for life just that insight into what happens in the world of crime and this year I was like no that's not for me so that was a kind of safe option and for me I I didn't, well, I didn't realise I struggled with my mental health pretty much my whole life for, for various reasons, various life events from, from really young. But it was really five years ago, it was the, the tipping point where my mental health deteriorated. And up until that point, I'd engaged with therapy, um, but nothing was working. So I did end up in a sort of a mental health facility as an inpatient. And from then, it was almost like I had to break myself so much in order to rebuild. And through that journey, became really passionate about trying to break the stigma around mental health. And uh, what I try to do and have been doing for the last sort of two, three years is try to raise awareness and, and be very open with my own story um, and just try to open up the conversation. I'm a natural empath and very helpful individual and I try to support others, but yeah, that's kind of me, I think. I love it. And the reason why like we're talking is I reached out to Zoe Sinclair, who runs This Can Happen. And, and as we spoke before we went on air, Jack, one of our previous guests, was also suggested by Zoe as a must-have a person to speak to. And so she spoke very highly of yourself. So I had to get in touch. But with all of these podcasts, I deliberately do a very, very bit of, bit of research just so that I know sort of where the conversation lies. But I'm, I love these as an initial conversation to explore more about, you know, yourself and, and your journey. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon some of the bits that you've mentioned throughout the conversation. But having studied psychology myself at A level and knowing the reasons why I got into it, what, what was it about the psychology that, that led you on to studying that and, and taking that on as a, as a career? So I knew nothing about psychology in high school. And I think my brother had was, he's like a year or two ahead of me and he was doing it. And I was, and I was like, that looks interesting. So I did A-level psychology and I think I had such good teachers as well. They were like young, not not long, kind of done their teachings or qualifications. So they were quite fun as well. But it was the content. It was the understanding how the human mind works. And it wasn't just the... The behavioural side, it was also a bit of the science side. So how the brain operates and what is like that causes certain things to happen. Animal behaviour, we studied, studied that as well. It was really interesting. But I can I can confidently say the one aspect that I didn't enjoy was the statistics. That's not me. <laughs> but obviously it forms a part of it. But it was really trying to get into that human behaviour. And I just wanted to understand more. And I'll, And that's kind of what I think led to me choosing to do it as a degree as well I wanted to get a bit further in I didn't quite know at that point which way I want to take it but I just I just knew I wanted to learn more about you know humans and and how the mind works yeah it's interesting it's the similar sort of reason why I explored it it was trying to understand what makes people 
tick. And I guess inadvertently what makes ourselves tick as well, right? Like trying to understand our Mm. own brain and makeup and why it works like it does. Are there any particular bits during your studies, any, you know, models or experiments that you know, historically had been done that really stand out in your mind as like, oh, my God, this is this is why I get into psychology. Is there anything in particular that, that you can remember that you could talk about? I think the classic well, kind of conditioning studies. Um, so, you know, I can't remember the names. It's been so long ago now. But yeah, it was all about, you know, how certain things can condition you to react in a certain way without you consciously realising. Then obviously the the Freud, the Freudian theories in terms of your um your your ED, your super ego and your ego and how they all interact and what goes on in the subconscious. And the other thing is where you can almost where you are in the here and now, you can trace it back to something in your past which is causing something to happen in the here and now. And just being able to make those connections, like you said, is it's I wasn't just understanding others, I was understanding myself. So this is why I might be this way or behaving this way or feeling this way. So it definitely gave me an insight to myself and, and understanding why I do certain things. Mm. Yeah, it's because one of the studies that, that sticks so strongly in my mind and one that I think, I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast that relates to certain environments, not just hospitality, is the Stanford experiment. Mm, I thought you might say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for me, that that experiment was very interesting to show how human behavior can change in such a very short period of time based on the environment that they're that they're in and often against their own character as well. But yeah, that was one I was just like, yes, this is this is why I'm I'm studying this. This is interesting, you know. And never ceases to surprise you or amaze you does it really human psychology yeah I mean you just see it playing out now if you just use social media as an example yeah you can easily and the media how they can switch someone's thinking and take people in another direction to what they normally might not and um, be thinking about somebody or something and it's just it's incredible I mean life is just one big social experiment <laughs> let's be honest yeah, we're not going to go into the simulation theory, are we? Like, <laughs> we're all sat here just in a giant computer waiting for the world to wake up. Yeah, and it's interesting when people would learn, or even sometimes now have learned that I've done a degree in psychology, they're like, oh, you're analysing me, aren't you? My response is always, we, everyone does it, regardless of whether you say psychology or not. When you meet someone, you, you instantly try to compute them, uh, compute and work out who they are, what are their intentions, do, and you're making those assumptions based on those first impressions. I had a conversation with someone recently about gut instinct. And you know when you walk into a room, and if you're a natural empath, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. You can walk into a room and you can feel the vibe. You know that something perhaps has happened in the, in the near past, or you know if there's a good vibe in the, in the room. And for a long time, I was like, oh, my God, there's an energy. And, you know, we're, we're all connected to this giant fiber of energy in, in the world. And, then, and I guess that's not been proven or disproven at this moment in time. But someone said to me, you do realize that there's so many calculations going on in your head at the moment that you walk into that room, that it's not necessarily that feeling comes off the back of a thought process. And those thought processes are happening in milliseconds. And so your brain is looking at the subtle cues of how people are sitting, you know, whether or not there's frowns on faces and you can read that in a millisecond. And like that in itself is, you know, the brain is such a powerful 
powerful tool that we just don't sometimes give it enough credit, right? No, absolutely. And it are that it is that all that stuff going on in the background. But for me, it's also that mind body connection, the, the gut and the brain connection. So it's almost like there's always information being passed across and, and stuff going on without you realizing. So when you get that, like you say, that gut instinct, there's so much more going on behind it um, that is influencing that. Yeah, definitely. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. That's one thing yeah. I've learned over the last few years. Is got to trust that gut instinct because so often when you suppress that, it ends up biting you in the ass. Yeah. And you can be wrong. <laughs> your gut instinct can be wrong, but at least you've gone mm. with your true authentic feeling rather than trying to suppress it. Trust your gut. Yeah. And more times than not, it's right. A lot of the times it is right. So it does pay off to to kind of follow it. And there's times when I'm, if I feel unsure, I kind of just say to myself, what is my gut saying? Kind of just move into my body and just kind of understand what is going on and then use that to make a decision. Love it. Oh, and it's always a learning thing as well, because you're, you're conditioned to go, oh, do you know what? This doesn't feel quite right. But I think, no, I think it could be okay. I think it could be okay. And in like two months, one year, or in my case with my mental illness, you know, 17, 18 years down the road, you're like, oh God, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> that was a mistake. I shouldn't have suppressed <laughs> that instinct. So study psychology to a great level and you moved into occupational psychology as well. You've mentioned you have your own mental illness, and I know from looking at your your website and your business, it was complex PTSD that you'd experienced. Or can you talk a little bit more about what was going on, or when when you first perhaps noticed that you you weren't well? So I think I've struggled with my mental health, so depression, anxiety from quite a young age, and um, so you know various things were happening in the household when I was growing up, and um, different traumas. But it was in my adult life when I was going through sort of um, fertility treatment and also got a diagnosis of endometriosis. So that was in 2014. Yeah, 2014. So from then, I um, and I'd only just, well, only a few years earlier, lost my mum to cancer. So there's a lot that was happening, a lot of grief. And then this was thrown into the mix. And then the, the treatment, I mean, we had three rounds of IVF, which each one had their own challenges and weren't particularly good. But it was the second round which resulted in ectopic pregnancy, which really, I think, was the, the marker point where things really changed. And I would I would see these kind of alternative therapists and they said, Anita, you've got PTSD. And I didn't make the connection because I thought, you know, that's something that people get back, have gone to war and, and come back as a result. It didn't resonate with me, but up until that point, I'd always had different kind of therapies and counselling, and it generally had helped me. But by that point, I was really struggling. I It wasn't helping me. Nothing was making an impact. And in fact, I was deteriorating quite a lot. And literally every day I was wishing that I wasn't there. I didn't really did not want to be in this world it was just difficult I felt I'd be better off not here and it would be kind of having those thoughts on a daily basis and just struggling to maintain some kind of well-being and then I started getting really intense panic attacks so in the middle of the night where I thought I was having a heart attack I'd be lying there for long periods of time and waiting for my heart to just calm down to the point where I kind of went to the doctor and they kind of did some um, test to check everything was okay 
yeah, I was just in tears and I was just, I couldn't function. My brain wasn't even working. I was struggling to even do my kind of day job. And then talking about instinct, my instinct told me I need to do something different. Didn't know what that was. And I laugh about it now, but I started looking into yoga retreats. But at the same time, I looked into inpatient care and I don't know why. I phoned the Priory and I spoke to them and then I found out the costs involved and I was like, mm, okay, that's not going to work. And then in the call she said, do you have private medical health care? And I said, actually, yeah, I do. I'm on my, my husband's policy through work. I said, well, that could be an option. So I spoke to my doctor, got a referral and went to speak to one of the psychiatrists um, just for an assessment. She was a lovely lady, Dr. Stromer. She helped me a lot uh, through, through my journey. And even going there, I thought, this doesn't feel right. It just feels like it's a bit extreme. And But I kind of went with it. I just followed it through, obviously forgot about the yoga retreat. And she said, yeah, it feels like you would benefit. But I was still kind of resisting it and didn't think that I, I thought I was overreacting and I, and I didn't need to be doing that. But about seven, ten days later, I was walking in as an inpatient. And it's obviously a memory that always sticks in my mind. And the anxiety that kicked in from that point, it just increased. And it's almost like my mind knew or my body knew that something big was coming. And that's kind of the start of the journey where I really started to break and things really started to unfold. Really? So the proactive step of sourcing help, going through, you know, getting the referral and walking into that environment, which is an environment that, you know, no recovery from mental illness is ever just an overnight thing and it takes time. But the thought of actually going into an environment like that, think, okay, well, this is the start of things getting better. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it was the complete opposite, right? Yeah, and it was nothing to do with the facility or the care or the treatment. It was it's almost like I I put myself into a place where I could just then fully break and I was just I was a completely different person. I was just what I get told now, I was so vacant, there was nothing behind my eyes. I was but internally there was this storm going on. I couldn't control, like my heart was constantly just on high alert and it was just racing I'd never taken medication up until that point I always believed in you know getting to the root cause and not using or going to medication so I was there for initially it was meant to be two weeks but it got extended to three and you know I engaged with everything that was there so all different types of therapy so it was group psychotherapy there was art therapy it was drama therapy obviously one-to-one work as well and it was just bringing up so many different things and it was actually only the start of it the scratching the surface and when I checked out but I was going to continue as a day patient that means you go there just access the, the different treatments I just mentioned and then what started to happen when I was at home is I started to feel really unsafe there was nothing around me to suggest I was in danger nothing at all everything was normal and stable but it was internally, I just felt unsafe to the point where I just felt like barricading myself in my room and just not coming out because I just didn't feel right. And where it got, it started to get really bad, I ended up going back in 
And that's when I got diagnosed with complex PTSD. And then things started to really make sense. I went on medication and it was always working closely with my psychiatrist to make sure the dosage was right, where I'm not overly numbing myself. I can still access my feelings and and work through it. So that was actually now five five years ago in, in December. So, yeah, at that point, I was really unwell and I was, I was a high risk for suicide. And that was a constant thing, daily battle for me to want to stay alive. And, yeah, I was in and out for a year, really. I would get a bit better and then kind of be back home, but, but a day patient, but then I would deteriorate again and be back. And there are moments in that year where things were bad and I remember being at home on a Sunday one day and I was fighting myself to not go and act on the urge to end my life and I was sat with it and I was fighting it I'd already planned what I was going to do how I was going to do it but I literally just sat there fighting myself and I was like I need to do something I phoned the Samaritans and it was just I had to just sit with it and there's when moments like that and even when I was having difficulties at any other time and wanted to just end things there'd almost be that tiny bit of glimmer tiny bit of part of me that was like hold on hold on and that I think is what got me through and having you know such good support around me and family at the priory that therapists that I work with they were all amazing and they all just gave me hope and like you said when you go in you think it's going to be you know a quick fix and every time I'd be asking the therapist so tell me when you think I might be getting better at that point thinking so I can do another round of IVF and that slowly went and and the the realization that this is not a, a quick thing this is going to take some time that sounds like a hell of a journey a hell of a battle yeah, as well. Yeah. But you're here. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here to tell the story. And the hope is that my story gives other other people hope. When things, you might be at your worst, you know, and the pain does end. It does end. Things do get better. And it's just trying to hold on to that. So after that first year, I didn't, I wasn't having any treatment with, the primary while I was having my own one-to-one therapy but then kind of six seven months later things got difficult again and I could feel it getting difficult but not to the left that same level so I went back and just had some day day therapy and then I stuck we moved house (laughs) moved out of London I started a job so the first time I was working again for about two years things got too much and then you know stuff was going on personally and then I was back in again but it was for about three months so partly inpatient partly outpatient and again it was working through things and there was a lot of processing there's a lot of things I learned that I needed to unlearn about myself my my core beliefs and yeah it's never-ending journey I'm not the finished article. No one ever is. But it's the investment that you put in yourself. It's the awareness of, okay, this something's making me feel this way. Why is that? And understanding where it comes from, that all helps. 
And for me, throughout my whole journey, I've done extensive research into PTSD. And there's like the connection with the body and the mind, how trauma lives in the body. That was the massive realisation. And obviously the Bible of this area is the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Body Keeps the Score, yeah. Yeah. What goes on in the mind and what goes on in the body and how it will translate. It's been a learning journey. You can say that for sure. And I can't even begin to imagine what that and how scary and, and what that must have been like during those times, especially trying to fight. You know, certainly, you know, urges like suicide impulses are. It's difficult to try and explain to someone who hasn't been there. You, we tend to hear these stigma, stigma-inducing comments like, you know, well, it's it's never that bad, and oh, it's selfish, and all this sort of stuff. But what I think that people are really missing here, and, and this is and similarly to anxiety where people are like, oh, look, you know, just it's okay, is you're missing that full-on body-filling feeling of this is going to happen or this is going like this is happening as opposed to it's not just a thought process in your head. You can go, oh, I think I might be overreacting here. That's it's a full on fiber filling like this is this is the reality. This is real. And I think that people miss that quite, quite often and they don't really understand. And it's difficult too, I guess, unless you've ever been there. You feel that way when you feel like there is no hope, things are not going to get better, that you're constantly suffering. And then if you add in things like stigma, where you feel like you can't talk about it, that just compounds it and makes you feel even worse. So that you're, you feel trapped. You feel there is no way out. You think there is no no hope. And that's, I suppose that's the thing with, with mental health is you want to reduce that stigma um, so people can be more open and get the help that they need. So that's been a massive issue is get trying to get around that. We are getting better, but there's still a very long way to go where people feel comfortable to be able to say it out loud. And it's when people don't tell anyone, that's when it can go in a really um, difficult direction and things like suicide can occur. And like you say, people do think it's selfish, but it's not when people are in so much pain you can't see a way out that is your only way out yeah if you're enjoying this week's episode consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier happier and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise we have a whole range of t-shirts hoodies chef's jackets well-being journals plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. This is a subject I feel very passionate about, and it's still very underrepresented. Culturally, it's been so shamed and stigmatized that even within our space and talking about it frequently, it still sets the hairs on the back of your neck up because that even the word is is so ingrained mm-hmm. in society. It's a bad word, which is just, it's so wrong on so many different levels. But one thing that I'm quite interested in myself is I've I've always been quite interested in the subject of PTSD. And as you say, predominantly, you tend to, when we do our training, we ask people, you know, where do you see PTSD? Like, oh, yes, you know, if you've been to war, you experience PTSD. But actually, 
we tend to find it higher and more common in not just other professions but also other other examples in life as well and so i'm interested from your own not just from your own personal experience but from the research and from your psychology background as well what sort of information can you give people about what you've learned about ptsd why first and foremost what is it and and why does it happen yeah so ptsd is post-traumatic stress disorder so what typically happens if there is an event happening and it doesn't have to be so extreme like you're in a burning house or you're at war it could be a car accident it could be you've been knocked over by someone on your bicycle but if it causes a traumatic response in within you so it's more about what happens within you than the actual event it's, it's how your body reacts how your body interprets what's happening so what can happen is in the moment you're you're basically your brain goes offline your brain goes offline and everything is just going on in your body. So your, your brain essentially is not processing the event as you would normally. So it ends up kind of sitting elsewhere and not being processed. So then what can happen is things can trigger you from that point. So if there's a smell, if there's an experience, if you watch something on TV, it will trigger, can trigger a response in your body and almost take you back to that moment because essentially what's happened is that memory hasn't been processed, so it's still constantly getting re-triggered. So what can happen is that develops other feelings. So it might be things like depression or experiencing anxiety, and it all feeds into your mental health, and it can cause your mental health to deteriorate if you're not almost dealing with the initial event or what's caused it. And obviously other things can happen and which can lead to you feeling things, symptoms linked to depression and anxiety. But it's almost you need to find a way to process that memory. And I mentioned before, the trauma tends to live in your body. So what for my personal experience and what I found helped me, and it's not for everyone, is when I did one-to-one therapy, it was working with the body. So what would happen is she would be, talk, be talking about something and she's saying, where are you feeling that in your body? And I would hone in on that and work on it. And actually things would come out by, by me almost focusing on that part of the body where there's a reaction happening. So it would be, for example, I can feel knots in my stomach, put my hand on my stomach, what is it telling you? And it would literally tell me things, memories would come out. Sounds insane, but it works. But it's about finding the things that help you to process those memories or that event. And it is very much about how you interpret things. So if, for example, you're a young child, you don't have the awareness of an adult, so you can attribute things to about yourself. So it's to do with you. It's my fault in some way. I caused this. And that you grow up with that sense of, responsibility and blame and that will then feed into your relationships and how you interact and feel about the world I find it very interesting because I think that certainly as a subject matter I mean we we know from recent studies that actually women who uh, have given birth uh, you know PTSD is is becoming more and more apparent with certain women who've had quite traumatic uh, certainly and for a long time that again that was sort of written off by the medical profession oh you know it's they'll be fine but actually they're now starting to see that that link in the brain the there's a hippocampus and amygdala isn't it and and how that can be 
fractured and how that can then have quite a quite an impact on you know a long-term impact it's again another part of mental illness or that people just don't talk enough about and that more awareness needs to be brought up and conversations like this are really key and the great thing is, is there's so much being done about it now as well isn't there so many breakthrough treatments that I say breakthrough, you know, treatments that have existed for, for years that are now being revisited that actually are having quite profound effects on recovery rates for things like PTSD, right? Yeah, and you've got things like EMDR, which is that typically what will happen is the, the movement of the fingers. So you'll be talking about an event and this is a way of processing things and almost putting it into that filing system, which should have, should have gone in initially. And that is used quite a lot in trauma processing and like you said the so the amygdala is in the back of the brain that's your that's your alarm system almost and an, a traumatic event can trigger that but then it almost it continues it continuously thinks that you're in danger so you're in the fight flight mode body doesn't need to be and that's where your kind of body's a bit hyperactive in, in responses and you might overreact to something which is triggering that because it feels like a, a bigger thing is happening when it's in reality, it, it's not. Someone who's listening to this says, experiencing some of the things that, that you felt initially with regards to responses, what's the first thing that you, you with your experience, would suggest that people can do to go get help? So obviously there's different access routes. You can speak to someone with the NHS. Granted, there obviously are long waiting lists and, and accessibility if you do have things like an employee assistance program for work or private medical, those are two other touch points that you can access treatment. And obviously there are charities like Mind Rethink where you can access um, treatment. And sometimes it is partly doing a bit of your own research as well to understand what it is that you might be experiencing that can feed into your conversation with that professional because sometimes they are time poor. They might not necessarily have had the the enough experience or kind of background in trauma to understand, okay, this is what's being presented. So I think it's from, from what I realised when I kind of had my real kind of crisis point, up until that point, counselling was helpful, but it was almost like a bit of a sticking plaster. It dealt with the more surface level. And what I found with the psychotherapy, it went on a deeper level to really go back into things and at the same time I was being educated on you know why I might be responding a certain way so that is helpful but I would definitely talk to a professional I mentioned before I was kind of a bit I didn't want to go down the medication route but what that medication allowed me to do is to be able to function but I think it's doing what feels comfortable and what is helpful for you Um, like I said still being not being completely numb so I was on low-dose antidepressant and also taking something for the anxiety when I needed it. So it wasn't a dependency. But sometimes you need it to function and to, you know, so you're not constantly feeling such intense feelings. But, yeah, I think talking to a professional and, yeah, being able to be vulnerable and not avoid talking about things which are really difficult, it's never easy but talk about the things that you feel that you're avoiding because those are probably the subjects that you need to be focusing on. I totally agree. Almost when you have to, when you're looking at recovery, 
whether it's from trauma or you know, any mental illness or even even on a real surface level, if you've had a disagreement with someone, say for anyone perhaps who's listened to this who thinks, oh, I, I just can't relate. I can't relate to what it might be to be mentally unwell or to experience a mental illness. Think about a time when you've had a disagreement with someone and maybe at work or at home and you don't say anything and it sit on it and it festers and it just sits and eats away at you constantly and you're you're you become passive aggressive you change your behavior you perhaps you're not making eye contact with that individual you're spending less time with them until you actually air that grievance but until you actually talk about it it sits there and so you almost have to take those steps back in order to move forward to be able to address it and then move forward and and i think i mean let's face it a disagreement with someone compared to a mental illness they're, they're on very different sides of the scale but when we're looking at mental illness you a lot of the time you have to go backwards in order to be able to make have to address that grievance you have to work through that in order to be able to start to look at forward momentum and it's feels unnatural doesn't it It almost feels because we're always taught you know to protect yourself don't touch that hot flame because you will get burned and it's going to hurt (laughs) but in fact actually sometimes we need to reach into that and go right let's pull out what's causing the fire to begin with and so that that fire then doesn't doesn't have any fuel to keep going feels sometimes a little bit counterintuitive but it does work it does work yeah there was a really good therapist he was very had a different approach, but he really got things out. And something he said to me, which just reminded me, he said, one of the reasons, Anita, I think you keep coming back here is because you're not saying what you need to say. And that has always stayed with me. And I know that when I'm not saying what I need to say or expressing myself, which I've always been a challenge, I can feel the buildup physically in me. So it is, I think, really important to say to express yourself because that's I would say it's a basic human need and if you don't it does sit in you it does manifest and it does then leak out as in in other behaviors and other relationships and impact your mental health so for me that was a really really big learning point he used different methods he got me doing the empty chair talking to an empty chair and imagining who is there that I need to have the conversation with He had me screaming in a room full of people just to get it it out because anger is something that I struggle to express and it always just sits in me and it just comes out in other forms of, for example, sadness. But anger is a natural human emotion which needs to be expressed in a constructive way, not destructive, but it's normal. It's normal to feel angry. Yeah. Something you said at the beginning of this this podcast was that you're a natural empath, but you're also, you like to please and to solve problems. And, and you know, it's, mm. it's a personality trait that I, I personally resonate with because you don't want to inflict anything on other people that potentially can upset them. And so as a result, you tend to swallow some of those, you mm-hmm. know, some of those things and you go, oh, it's not a big deal, actually, I'll deal with this. And it's funny how those those start to bubble and eat away at you and and sit. So expression in all forms is uh, healthy because, as I keep saying, and my rhetoric is hasn't changed since day dot, we are just animals. There is no one on this planet, even your biggest hero who, you know, whether they're ex-forces, whatever it might be, everyone feels emotions. Everyone feels 
exactly the same sort of feelings and sensations in their body, whether they choose to express it or not, trying to ignore that and deny that is just to deny the fact that you're a human being and that you exist. Exactly. And I think just from what I see with children, they need to be learning these things at an early stage. And it's getting better. I think kids are becoming better at expressing emotion, but it's something I think that needs to be encouraged in all environments about being able to express yourself. If I did that from young, or if I if someone encouraged me, it might have been different. I might be more expressive. So I have three siblings who are the absolute opposite to me. They are a lot more expressive. They will speak their mind, but kind of the way my brain evolved is I I did the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, funny enough, my sibling is a uh, complete opposite to me as well. She was very much that if she saw something that was incorrect, you know, whether it's culturally or politically, she would say it. And I was always in awe because mm. she's three years younger than me. I was always in awe of her at school. I was like, how can you do that? Like, what happens if you offend someone? She's like, <laughs> look, you can't go through life, Chris, pleasing everyone. And this was, I mean, she was only 12, 13. And I was like, you are like, wow, you're my idol. And for years i was always the opposite way oh i can't you know, oh, i disagree you know disagree with that or and she's a happy healthy you know human being and yeah she's not perfect none of us are but she definitely didn't struggle with the same issues that i had from the early age but we don't necessarily we're not conscious enough at a young age to be able to say oh do you know what we should we should express mm-hmm. ourselves it's a perfectly good way i think there's definitely a learned a learned skill right or or inherently yeah. sometimes you are just born with the ability to do so quite comfortably yeah and i kind of try and trace back the people pleasing to when i was younger so when I was young, I was growing up in a household where domestic abuse was happening. Um, my father was an alcoholic. And in my mind, I just, maybe it's part of my nature, I wanted to try and help my mum and make things better for her. And, and I found the only way that I could by being really good, being like well-behaved, helping out around the house. And I think that was probably the start of me trying to almost save people and be a people pleaser and try and I think that's where it kind of started and evolved and obviously came out in different ways as I was older. But it's it's realising things like that where you could then start to become more conscious about it and try to shift it to protect yourself because people-pleasing is you're putting so much importance on others that you, you, you lose a sense of yourself. So it has been, for me, part of the journey is becoming more familiar with who I am and what it is that I want. Yeah. And I think certainly within hospitality, that's something a lot of the listeners will resonate with as well in, in a, a service industry where often enough you are doing it for the customer or the business or for your team members. Mm-hmm. Often enough, we tend to, to do so a detriment to our own, you know, our own well-being, whether that's not stopping for a break or drinking enough water or missing time with our family or friends or exercising or all of these other things that aren't as important as providing the best, very best service possible and we need to try and regain that equilibrium. Talking of equilibriums, so you've, you know, and I think I also want to thank you for talking about your experience as well, because, you know, people listen to our guests and they listen to me talk about our experiences of mental illness. And yes, perhaps it gets a little bit more or a little less uncomfortable the more you talk about it, but it, it's still, you know, it still takes energy and it still takes, you know, courage to do so. So I appreciate that. Thank you. What have you learned 
moving forward, what does your recovery look like? What's your mental hygiene or mental fitness looking like nowadays? What sort of things are you doing that give back to you and, and to, you know, focus more on your well-being? Yeah, so something that I realise is when you're um, feeling intense emotion, especially when it's a really low mood or really anxious and it's like you feel it in your body, is just getting up and moving and that could literally be getting up off your sofa, walking around your house, could be going for a walk, could be engaging in some form of exercise. Now, for me, I absolutely love dance. Um, so what I do quite a lot of is I just follow YouTube workouts, which are all about dance. And instantly my mood feels better afterwards. Because what I what I find is when it's like your your emotions become stagnant, they're not moving and they're just sitting with you and it makes you feel worse and worse and you're carrying this weight. But literally just moving up, getting up, moving your body, it just I think can can create that shift and, and kind of get things moving around. And what I try to do and most days of the week, the first thing I do when I get up is I go for a walk. So I will get out into nature. And again, it's that movement, I think, which gets your body um, shifting, get you help stabilise mood, um, getting that fresh air and just kind of kickstarting my brain because otherwise I feel like my brain gets a bit lethargic. So I think that walk really helps me get up and move. Something I discovered when I went into the Priory, so they do like blood checks and stuff and, one, and then the doctor said, you've got really low vitamin D, really low. And did you know that you're prone to it because of your ethnicity and it impacts your mental health? And I was like, I did not know this. So from then, I take supplements of vitamin D. And especially in obviously in the winter, it's worse where you're not getting that. And that's, this is what I tell everyone, take vitamin D for your mental health. Make sure it's at the right level. So that's another important thing. And then something I've discovered through my journey is I've I love to be out in nature. So I do go out for long walks. I connect with, you know, the colours around me. I love autumn with the change of the leaves. That I, I just love being out there. And I'm really lucky I live outside of London where I've had some really nice spots to go to go walk in um, and just disconnect from, from life. And at the start of my recovery journey, um, I was in the Priory and I, what came out of me was poetry. It just literally reams and reams of poetry and a lot of it is centered around mental health but it was it was a way of expression and what I found is what sometimes I couldn't speak I could write so that could be a form of journaling it is a form of almost therapy is getting things out of your it's, a, it's getting that stuff out of your head so you, you might be ruminating catastrophizing you know thinking about things from the past and you literally get it out of your head by writing it down or saying it out loud. So it's finding the things that help. But for me, poetry, it's when I look back now, I can track my journey in terms of what I'm, how dark my writing is. And sometimes I read stuff from back then. It's like, oh, wow. And for me, it's something I've continued. I still write poetry and I'm, I'm, I share it more often. Got my first uh, magazine publication this year, which is great. Oh well, done. and I've been <laughs> thanks. And for a while now, I'm like, right, I need to get that book together. So what I did, I had it all written down. I've got it into a word document. I mean, I've got a spreadsheet inventory of them. So I just need to the next year now. I think we should do something with that. So I love all, all things writing. 
human connection. I think if you can find someone you trust and feel like you can open up to, and sometimes the hardest thing is getting those initial words out, but is take that risk. Find that person you can reach out to. And it could be someone who talks a lot about mental health, like me, myself or, or yourself, Chris, is reaching out, just making that initial contact and just signposting. And that's what I, I do quite a lot. I do, people do come to me, people have come to me by accident and I've been able to advise them about things that can help them and, and take them through their own journey. Something I love doing is voluntary work. So I've done that probably the most this year. So at the start of this year, I ran, I ran a creative writing group for a, a women's charity. Um, I'm currently coaching secondary school children. Um, I run a support group for a fertility network, which is a, a national charity. So all of those things <laughs> sounds really busy, but it fills my cup. And I think it's it's knowing what fills your cup and makes you feel good and actively, consciously do more of it. Yeah, I agree. And it's such... I mean, two of the points in there, personally, I've got experience with are so underestimated in terms of the benefits that they provide, which is writing down and journaling, which is still the benefits of that are profound, whether that is in poetry, whether that is in even artistry, you know, drawing or just listing down what's going through through your heads. It is amazing the, the sense of relief that you can feel once you've told a piece of paper. You've not even told a human being, you've told a piece of paper and all of a sudden and that does have a really profound impact. But also volunteering and providing your time and resources and expertise for free. And that I know now people smirk at me when we do when we talk about our sort of like the can do attitude. So how you offer your services to people and the benefits that that has on your well-being and how, you know, as an intrinsic value that that fills you up, people so often smirk and they scoff at that they're like oh yeah sure you know picking up a piece of rubbish that's not mine and putting it in the bin but not telling anyone that yeah that's really going to have a benefit on my well-being but you're like no you're you're missing one of the biggest secrets here is that if you donate your time and your energy and you do it without wanting thanks or reward or payment it really does have such a profound impact on your overall you know mental health and your well-being it's not enough is spoken about in terms of that yeah and I think a lot of it links to your own purpose what is your purpose in life what is it that you that you want to engage in or what's going to be almost your legacy and what's going to fulfill you because you know a lot of people obviously are they're in jobs they're doing the job they've always known but they've evolved as a person and not necessarily doesn't fulfill them so then it's almost like, how do you then engage with things that's going to make you feel like you, you have a purpose? And, and voluntary work, I think, definitely, definitely does that. Yeah, massively. That sense of belonging and where am I in the life and what am I giving to others is, yeah, you take away all the social constructs and I, I'm probably getting a little bit too deep here, but you take away all the social constructs of money and wealth and clothing and fashion and security and all of these other things that we've we've built around ourselves to live more comfortably and actually at the end of the day we are just animals sharing a hunk of rock and actually what really matters the most is human kindness and your own health and you know fixing your own innate needs but also helping your fellow human being to keep going as well and i think we're rapidly moving further and further away from that with things like social media etc that 
you know, is it any wonder that actually mental illness and, and mental health is declining is because we're actually further and further away from our basic innate needs. It's yeah. Let's go back to being caveman people again. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if it wasn't a need that I need to be earning money to be able to live, pay my mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, I would fully want to be engaged in where can I add value? Where can I really help people who need the help in life? And it was interesting because I've got a, a diary from when I was seven and there's one little page where I've written when I grow up, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a teacher and help children because I, you know, really enjoy that kind of thing. And then it was like, if I don't be that, I want to be a, and it was like a dot, dot, dot. Now I'm still trying to find out <laughs> what that is. And I've always toyed with becoming a therapist, but I've always been resistant because I'm such an empath and and worry about people and I'd, I'd be constantly thinking about my clients so I decided to go down the coaching route so when I was you know coming up tail under my recovery I decided okay coaching is a way to do it to support people I can bring things into my toolbox and different approaches which support it but it is very much about it's action orientated it's thinking about moving things forward to help people and feel better and so that for me is, is one element of you know how I can be helping people to move forward because I I have this experience and I suppose insight into okay you're feeling this way now but you know what's causing it what's going to help you move forward what can you do differently so it is very much about taking a future approach yeah massively I love the your, your what is my dot 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 yeah that that <laughs> was a <laughs> up until six years ago I didn't know what my dot 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 was I was just doing what I thought was expected getting a job and paying bills and that is a need unfortunately that is a very much a need of the world but perhaps connecting with your inner child we all need to connect with our inner child a little bit more and like what was it that you wanted yeah. to do before you had all the pressures of life and the world and you know what was it that got you out of bed and got you to eat your Cheerios or your cornflakes in the morning? What was your aspirations then? And, and what can we do to get back there and try and make it financially viable to do so as well? It's, yeah, a big area of passion. So if you were to go back and speak to your seven-year-old self now, what would you say to yourself that hopefully would allow your seven-year-old self to be, feel a little bit more empowered? I think just touching on what we said earlier is speak your mind. Don't hold everything inside of you speak how you're feeling, speak what you need. I think that's a lot of people struggle with saying what they need because they don't want to, you know, put something on someone else or, you know, but it's very much you need to say what you need. Yeah, I really struggled with confidence quite a lot. So going back, I'd probably say try to be more vocal will probably help with that confidence and help build that up a bit more. Be fearless don't worry about what people will think because most of the time people are not even thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. And really, what does it matter what someone thinks? What does that add to your life? What difference does it make? What impact does it have? Don't worry about it. Be a bit more fearless and try to push the boundaries. So I've, I'm very much, especially when I was younger, rule abiding, be that good girl do what I'm told, but push those boundaries a little bit. And I think that can also feed into confidence. And yeah, don't be constricted by what other people expect or boundaries, but have boundaries, 
I definitely have boundaries because <laughs> that is something I've only started doing the last few years. I didn't realize and how difference it can make to you feeling empowered is don't do the things you don't want to do and don't let other people cross those boundaries with you. And that's a lot of time can impact your mental health when your boundaries are being crossed and you can't say what it is that works or doesn't work for you. So I think those are probably the key things. I love it. A lot of <laughs> a lot of really valuable insights there. A lot of valuable insights and, and ones that I completely resonate with as well. It's it's often easier said than done, but you know, none of these things have to be done in their entirety straight away. Start small. You know, there was a coach that I knew many, many years ago who used to get people to stand in the middle of the street and just shout random things in busy shopping centers to show that actually, you know, yes, it feels uncomfortable and it feels really, really weird and socially mm-hmm. not perhaps the done thing. But actually, whilst people's heads might turn, they then forget about it within three seconds later that you're not you're not having a lasting impact on their day so we tend to soften worry and catastrophize on these things but actually examples like that show that not no one really cares everyone's so focused on their own world and their own Mm -hmm. things and their own thoughts actually you can do you and be comfortable to do so a little bit more yeah and I think that's what everyone could probably do especially with the social media is forget about what's external focus on your internal what's more important for you amen to that so thank you anita you mentioned that you do coaching i know that you do transformational coaching and do you still do any organizational psychology as well do you work with organizations on that on that so i'm well so i work for a company so i kind of a lot of what i do just does feed into that so things around sort of doing psychometric testing so that's a lot of i love that side of thing coaching sort of so leadership and talent development so yeah it feeds into my job so yeah and so where can people find you if they wanted to learn more about you and to learn more about your your work so obviously I'm on LinkedIn and then I've got my own sort of coaching website and yeah I can share the details of that as well and that's where I can be found in terms of my poetry on Instagram it's at poetry knows no name so I can share that with you as well Please. And we'll put that in the in the show notes at the end of this as well. So people can have easy link to that because I'd like to read it myself and I'd like to learn more. It's I've never written. I've never written any poetry ever. So you might inspire me to try something new. (laughs) Give it a go. (laughs) Thank you. Anita, thank you ever so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure having you on and thank you for sharing your experiences. No, thank you for the opportunity.